Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 63 of Starship Sova's Oral Delights. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, welcome on this snowy, cold Wednesday, Wednesday morning for me, hopefully Wednesday afternoon for you, Wednesday evening for you. How is everyone? It is freezing. Brass monkeys, as we like to say, up north here. Give you a heads up what's coming on today's show. We have a little editorial by my good self. A spot of poetry by Geo Clark. We have some flash fiction by none other than Jay Lake. Fact article comes today from none other than Amy H. Sturgis. And the main story today is none other than John Scalzi's After the Coup. Fantastic short story. Makes you love science fiction all the more. So I hope you'll stick around then. Enjoy the show. So let's kick off with the editorial. And I was inspired to talk about this re- this editorial basically because of the story we'll have the main story today which is john scalzi's after the coup when we first kicked off starship so far it was going back to you know the kind of the classics the alfred bestas the john brummers the philip k dicks and i'm just wondering now how people feel about you know the kind of i'm classing scalzi as a new pup on the block you know but he's been around a while there now but we have like the likes of ted kuzmatska and gold that are kind of hitting the airwaves there now and how do people come up against new writers? Do you know, for me, before I kind of started doing Starship Sofa, there was, to be honest, like a little bit of hesitation. Do you know, I like to know an author before I've even tackled them. And I'm just wondering, is this the case with everyone out there? Do you know, you kind of pick up a book by Philip K. Dick and, you know, most people might have kind of know his track record, you know, and... Alfred Bester, you know, you've, you've probably heard, you know, Star's My Destination. But what happens when you come up against, like, a, a, you know, a kind of brand new author? It's quite easy to, to give in and to kind of accept and, like, read, you know, put the effort and time in to read a new author. Or is there a little bit hesitation where, oh, I don't know, I'd rather just, you know, I'll stick to what I know best. Like I say, when we kicked off Starship Sofa, that was the case for me. Do you know what I mean? And that's the reason why Starship Sofa took off in the first place. You know, it's to bring out or bring to the front everyone who we used to like. And now, though, it seems the way I'm kind of turning is, you know, I'm more than happy to kind of, and I'm, I'm actually excited when there's a new, new author there. Do you know what I mean? And I'll read it for the first time, a little short story. And you come away thinking, wow. Do you know what I mean? It's, I got that feeling with Scalzi, with you know, his old man war story. That was a great novel. Do you know what I mean? A fantastic novel. And it's the same feeling I've got with his latest one, what we're actually going to play on this show. It is one of those stories where you think, 
yes, that's what science fiction means, you know, and the likes of Gold Seller when he's going to, he's coming back with Lester Blues, which is actually going to be on this show very soon. And, you know, Ted Kazmaska, I've got another one by Ted. That They are just exciting writers. And I'm just thinking, is that how people normally approach, you know, science fiction writers? Do, do you like to kind of, your comfort and you're, it's hard to stray off? Or is it quite easy to kind of dip into fresh new writers and, you know, swim in the seed of new ideas? Let me know. Please pop over the forums or just send an email, you know, Starships over at gmail.com or like I say, go over the forums and just how is it for everyone else? Is it easy to accept a new writer or is it a little bit challenging? Do you know, you, you kind of like your comfort blanket of your old guys and golden age, shall we say, of science fiction or you don't really mind? Let me know. I think we'll jump into some pouring with G.O. Clark. Spot in Space by G.O. Clark. See Spot. Gazing out the porthole of his space capsule, looking down at Dick and Jane, who are waving goodbye to him, their pet and loyal friend, and now the pride of a nation about to become the first dog ever to blast into space and leave old Earth behind. See Spot, straining in his harness, G-forces building, fear clouding his perky eyes, bladder giving way, praying that the rivets just hold, while safe on terra firma, Dick and Jane, mobbed by reporters, eagerly grabbed the spotlight. See Spot. In freefall now, noxious and sweat-drenched from head to tail, wondering to himself, What the hell was I thinking when I signed on for this thing? Even Curious George turned it down flat. I'm a simple mutt, and would rather be home chasing my tail or a new red ball. Before freezing in horror, as he sees every red malfunction light on the control panel begin to blink. Many chapters later, after the official state funeral, news conferences, luncheons, and dinners for Hero Spot, a new Dick and Jane settle into a somewhat different routine, a whole lot richer thanks to the book and movie deals. And dramatically, at each book's end, When the night sky is crisp and clear, they stroll out beside their new swimming pool and pointing up at an unblinking star as it leisurely moves east to west. Dick says, See spot, Jane, see spot, so high up in the sky, round and round spot goes, like a merry-go-round. What fun for our dog spot, if only he were still alive. Good night, spot, sleep tight, spot. Bye-bye, Spot. There you go. Thank you, G.O. Clark. Thank you very much, sir. And Julie Davis. Julie, immense. Thank you very much. Now we come up to a bit of flash fiction by none other than Jay Lake. Now, who is Jay Lake? Well, we've actually had Jay Lake on a couple of times, but from his website, which I recommend, please go over to Jay Lake's website. There'll be a link on the front of his site. But Jay Lake was one of the writers who got together with Audible and came up with the Metropolis stories. So please check out those over at Audible. But who is Jade Lake? He is the award-winning author of four novels and over 240 short stories. He is the acclaimed anthology editor, winner of the 2004 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, multiple Hugo and World Fantasy nominee, 2008 Sidewise Award finalist in 2008, he was the John W. Campbell Memorial Award finalist. That's the actual, the other Campbell Award. 
He came first in L. Ron Hubbard's Right of the Future contest. Narration today comes from our, the one and only, our good friend, Mr. J.J. Campanella. What a fine narration. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present Jesus and the Cowboys by J. Lake. In fall of 1865, Jesus of Nazareth signed on for a cook to the scouting expedition of Charlie Goodnight's crazy plan to run cattle from Texas to New Mexico. He was a dab hand with seafood and baked goods and brought his own gear, mostly rebel leftovers he'd salvaged out of the ruins of the Confederate prison camp at Andersonville. One night along the old Butterfield's overland mail route, the four cowboys and the son of man crouched around the campfire eating fried catfish and cornbread. Johnny Forth poked Jesus in the ribs with the butt of his Colt 1851 Navy revolver. You wasn't really a Sultana disaster, was you? I heard tell there wasn't a man who lived when that old steamboat went up. And the rain descendeth, and the floods came and the winds blew, said Jesus, who had raced back and forth across the dark Mississippi waters that night to personally save over two dozen men and a badly stunned alligator. Johnny lay off him, said Sergeant Marcus. He'd known Jesus a long time, since they were in Andersonville together, where the men had died like flies and the flies had feasted like kings. He's always going on about loaves and fishes and spinning lilies, said Johnny, skulking outside the circle of the fire to check their horses. And the perfectibility of man, whatever the hell that is. Judge not that ye be not judged. Jesus said as Johnny moved in the darkness. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. You took one in the head during the war, didn't you, G? Johnny shouted from the safety of the shadows. Mateo Vangelis and Luke East, the other two cowboys, exchanged rueful grins. The next morning, the scouting party realized they were in Indian country, judging from the arrow that quivered in Johnny's shoulder. Damn, Johnny said, looking at the fletching. Duck feathers. Mescalero Apache, grunted Sergeant Marcus. He, Mateo, and Luke scrambled away from the octeal, searching for their attackers. Jesus hugged Johnny in the lee of a red sandstone boulder and examined the arrow. Johnny grunted with the pain, but Jesus laid a finger on the young man's lips. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, said the Son of Man quietly as gunfire rattled a few yards away. Someone yelped. Uh, thanks, Johnny whispered. Jesus tore open the cowboy's shirt and drew the arrow out. He smiled, touched the wound, and the bleeding stopped. Jesus and Johnny watched the ragged flesh knit together again. Johnny's gaze flickered back and forth between the bright pink scar and Jesus' brown eyes. Holy cow! Behold, I give unto you power to tread upon serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Mateo walked back into camp. Just a couple of kids out looking for trouble. We gave it to them. You boys doing all right? Johnny stared at his own shoulder. It's a miracle. It's all I can say. What are you doing here with us, G? asked Mateo, eyes narrowed as Sergeant Marcus and Luke came back, 
carrying a lumpy, bloody sack. You don't seem like a man looking for a fight. Jesus smiled. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. Mateo glanced back at Sergeant Marcus and Luke. He's holding a five-card hand in a seven-card game, friends. Jesus nodded. Mateo was right. He had rested here long enough, recovering from the horrors of the war between the states. Time was limited. He had to move on. Jesus blessed the four cowboys, saying, Yet a little while in the world shall seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. The Son of Man walked out of camp and into the hospital station at Rourke's Drift fourteen years later and two continents away. The four cowboys watched him fade into a blood-soaked nightmare that vanished like smoke. "'Reckon one of you boys is going to have to start cooking for us now,' said Sergeant Marcus finally. "'Where'd he keep them loaves and fishes?' Johnny asked. Their trails were firm and their horses strong, and they rode healthy and unhurt until the end of their days. Each of the four, a lucky man. There you go. Thank you, Jay Lake. Don't forget, all copyright is Mr. Lakes, and a great thank you to J.J. Campanella. Do pop over to both sites. All links will be on the front of the website. Straight in now to our fact article this month, and it is Amy H. Sturgis. Amy, what is going on, my young lady? Hello, Sophonauts. Today, for our look back into genre history, I'd like to bring your attention to one of the unsung heroes of the pulp era of science fiction. By looking at his writings, both fiction and nonfiction, his life and his influence, I hope to convince you that Dr. Miles J. Brewer deserves to be remembered and read today. Brewer was the quintessential Gernsbachian. When Hugo Gernsback founded Amazing Stories, he wrote that it would be a magazine of scientific fiction, a pioneer in its field in America. Quote, by scientific fiction, I mean the Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and Edgar Allan Poe type of story, a charming romance intermingled with scientific fact and prophetic vision. That's exactly what Brewer provided. And because of that, he was one of the first and most respected new voices that emerged from the Amazing Stories era. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me back up and tell you a little bit about Dr. Miles J. Brewer before I discuss his contributions to Amazing Stories. He was born in Chicago on January 3, 1889, to parents who were immigrants from Czechoslovakia. He grew up in the community of Crete, Nebraska, which was a Czech community, and was first and foremost a man of science. He went to Creighton University in Omaha, where he received his MD in 1897, and he became a prominent physician in southeastern Nebraska. It's interesting to note, considering the years involved, that uh, both of his daughters also grew up to be prominent physicians. His first writing, then, was medical, not fictional. He wrote medical articles for Czechoslovakian newspapers and a health column in the largest Czech agricultural monthly that ran in the United States. He also wrote medical papers that were published in professional venues. Perhaps most importantly for our understanding of Brewer's fiction, 
he wrote a handbook called The Index of Physiotherapeutic Technique. Why, you may ask, should you care? Well, first of all, it was considered to be one of the first books on physical therapy really ever written. In that sense, it showed his approach to technology and to science altogether in his preoccupation with being able to share information widely with practitioners, to standardize information and results, and compare techniques. It is also interesting because of the degree to which Brewer tapped into and used and gave credit to human psychology as a motivating force and legitimate subject of inquiry. These things would show up as well in his fiction. Brewer was also an avid book collector. His personal collection reportedly included over 8,000 volumes, and one of the authors he was most interested in was H.G. Wells. And this led him to Amazing Stories. When Gernsback started Amazing Stories, he had to rely heavily on reprints of classic and popular authors, one of whom was H.G. Wells. It took a while for Gernsback to develop a stable of new talent devoted to what he perceived as a unique and path-breaking new genre. Miles Brewer read this publication, said, Hey, I can do that and he already had the scientific background to give him lots of fodder for stories. And so, as scholars such as Michael R. Page have pointed out, he became the first new writer of consequence who really came into his own with his fiction writing career in science fiction magazines, such as Amazing Stories. Eventually, he published in a number of places, including Amazing, Astounding Stories, Argosy, Comet Stories, and others. I'd like to focus on several key works that he wrote in order to give you a sense of his kind of writing. Perhaps his best and most popular story was The Gostak and the Doshes, which was published in Amazing Stories in March 1930. Now, it gets its weird title from the nonsensical sentence, The Gostak Distems the Doshes. This mock-up sentence was used in English primers to explain sentence structure. The point being, you don't really have to know what gostaks or doshes are or what distimming means, because if you see the way the sentence is put together, you appreciate that whatever's doing the thing is a gostak, whatever's being done is distimming, and the thing that is being distimmed is the dosh. And now we know how the sentence works. The point of Brewer's really chilling story is that this nonsensical sentence is transported to an alternate earth. And the misuse of the phrase, it's uh, the assumptions that come about what the phrase means, the way it gets uh, bandied about as a kind of weapon, ends up leading to world war. Some think that this is a look back at World War I. Some think that it's looking forward to the rise of European fascism before World War II. Either way, it's extremely powerful in its dystopian vision. And I think it's still relevant as well, 
dealing with mass psychology, with totalitarianism, and the misuse of language. You can see his flair for human psychology coming here. And you can also see that he paves the way for other authors like A.E. Van Vogt to deal with language, well, kind of in a postmodern critical kind of way. Fascinating stuff Miles Brewer's doing here. Another story I'd like to talk about is A Problem in Communication, which was first published in Astounding Stories of Super Science in September 1930. In this tale, Brewer shows a very different kind of dystopian vision. The story is about a cult-like community that is founded in the U.S. state of Virginia. Ultimately, it threatens the existence of the United States itself. What's interesting is that this community, in effect, worships science. I must say, I found this a really chilling read in the way in which the leaders seduce scientists and scholars and engineers to come to this community, promising them the latest and greatest technology and the freedom to do with it what they do best, only to find that when they, in fact, go there, they are held captive. And the description of the kind of surveillance society that grows out of that is downright spooky. And true confession time, I had more than one flashback to Tony's episode on L. Ron Hubbard as I was reading this. <clears throat> and I think it's no coincidence that Scientology emerged out of the kind of pulp magazines for which Brewer was writing. Another key work of Brewer's was his dystopian novel, Paradise and Iron, which was published in the summer 1930 issue of Amazing Stories Quarterly. Paul Carter has said that Paradise and Iron essentially offers an allegory about the ramifications of human creativity in a future that is increasingly controlled by machines. Brian Stableford has called it a particularly early example of mechanization anxiety. And certainly you can see the influence of works such as H.G. Wells' The Time Machine in this novel. I'd like to read you a small excerpt from Paradise and Iron just to give you a sense of the flavor of Brewer's writing. And one disclaimer, things are not quite as they appear. So there's more than just a The Time Machine-esque Morlocks and Eloy division going on here. But this is very early in the novel, so it doesn't give away too much. Our first duty is to the machines. Mildred came by and hurried me away. Your eyes look as big as saucers, she laughed. I tried to compose my astonished exterior, but calming the whirling astonishment within me was not so easy. The thoughtless words of children will often let the cat out of the bag, while the carefully acquired habits of adults keep secrets safely. Here was another confirmation of my suspicions, that the people on this island were not as completely happy as external appearances might seem to indicate. These people did not understand all this vast machinery. They could not operate it, nor keep it in repair. Somewhere on the island, there must be others who did so. And in some way, they seemed to hold these grown-up children of the City of Beauty in their power. There was lurking fear in the eyes of the boys. 
and in an occasional unguarded glance of the elders. "'There's Ames now!' someone shouted. We pushed our way out on the broad staircase of the curved balcony. A car was hurrying toward us, up the broad sweep of pavement bordered with shrubbery and electric lights on concrete pillars. On the opposite side of the drive were parked many cars and a dense crowd. There were numerous shouts of pleasant bantering as Ames was recognized in the brilliant illumination of the electric lamps. His car drove into an empty parking space, and he got out and started across the stretch of pavement toward us. Then there was a rattle of an exhaust off to the right and a whirl of machinery up the road. A horrible-looking thing on wheels dashed up and made directly for Ames, focusing on him its glaring headlights. He stopped as though rooted to the spot. A more frightening-looking thing has never been imagined in all the lore of sea monsters and dragons. It was the same thing that I had caught a glimpse of that night on the dock, or another thing just like it. Its general form was that of a huge motorcycle with the great coffin-shaped box seven feet high between the wheels, at the top of which were two goggly headlights. Only, the first time I had seen it, it had seemed to have some sort of black ropes coiled round and round the box. Now, these were unwound. They waved about, felt around, coiled and uncoiled, and grasped at the empty air, ten or a dozen huge black tentacles, filling the air with sinuous, snaky masses. Right in the middle of the road, in plain view of a couple of hundred people, it reached for Ames and wrapped a black coil around him. He stood as though struck paralyzed, though I could see him tremble. It began to drag him toward itself. In another moment, as I looked about me, I was alone. The people were all fleeing pell-mell into the building. There's paradise and iron in a nutshell. Brewer didn't just adopt the dystopian idea from H.G. Wells. He was also, like Wells, very interested in Mars, and he wrote a series of stories about Mars and or Martians. The last short story by Brewer that I would like to mention is The Oversight, one of his last stories, which was published in Comet Stories in December 1940. And though it may not be readily apparent to you from the description, it falls into the category of one of Brewer's uh, Martian stories. I should also mention that another one of the characteristics of Brewer's work is close, careful, attentive, three-dimensional descriptions of Nebraska landscapes. The oversight is an excellent example of this as well. I don't want to say too much for fear of giving anything away in this story, but let's just say it begins when, in the present day for the story, which would have been, of course, 1940, Roman legions start appearing on the Missouri River. I'll give you a quick, quick taste of this story, because it's just too good not to. John C. Hastings, senior medical student in the Nebraska State University Medical School at Omaha, looked out of the window of the Packard sedan he was driving down the road along the top of the bluff and out in the middle of the Missouri River. He saw a Roman galley sweeping down midstream with three tiers of huge oars. A pang of alarm shot through him. The study of medicine is a terrible grind. He had been working hard. In a recent psychiatry class, they had touched upon hysterical delusions and illusions. Was his mind slipping? Or was this some sort of optical delusion? He had stolen away from Omaha with Celestine Newberry to enjoy the green and open freshness of the country, 
like a couple of stifled city folks. Perhaps the nearest he had come to foolishness had been when the stars had looked like her eyes, and he had pointed out Mars and talked of flying with her to visit that mysterious red planet. Do you see it too? he gasped at Celestine. She saw it too, and heard the creak of oars and the thumping of a drum. There floated up to them a hoarse chant, rhythmic but not musical, broken into by rough voices that might have been cursing. That's the oversight. There are two more aspects of Brewer's work that I want to mention. First of all, he was a mentor to other writers, particularly Jack Williamson, the man who went on to become lauded as the dean of science fiction. Brewer was a good decade older than Williamson, and he encouraged the young writer. They published in some of the same periodicals, and also collaborated with him. Of Brewer, this is what Williamson wrote in his autobiography. Miles J. Brewer. He had fans then, and his name on magazine covers. The long decades since then have almost erased his reputation, but he was among the first and best of the amateurs whose work Gernsback began to print. Brewer drilled me in the values of character and theme and believability. People the reader can know and love or hate or both. Plots that somehow reflect the reader's actual hopes and fears. I owe him a considerable debt. For sympathetic and intelligent help when I needed it, and I'm sorry to see him so completely forgotten. He was one of our pioneers. His vision nobler than anything he did. It's interesting that they also collaborated on works together, most notably in the novel, The Birth of a New Republic, which was published in Amazing Stories Quarterly in 1931. It retold the American Revolution, using. The moon in place of the colonies, and the earth as the metaphor for Great Britain. Hmm, you might say that sounds really familiar. Well, yes, it should. One of the people who wrote a letter of congratulation and admiration about the novel to Miles Brewer was Robert Heinlein, who would later adapt the exact same premise, retelling the American Revolution using the moon, in his. Masterpiece: The Moon Is a Harsh Mistress. Brewer should also be remembered for his nonfiction. He wrote letters to the various pulp publications about their contents. He wrote letters to other authors, and he also wrote an important essay called "The Future of Scientific Fiction," which was published in Amazing Stories Quarterly in the summer of 1929. It was a hopeful, optimistic. Ambitious view of the way the genre would develop. It was instrumental in defining people's expectations about the genre, and with Hugo Gernsback's introductory essay to the first edition of Amazing Stories and Jack Williamson's influential essay, Scientific Fiction: Searchlight of Science, together formed the. Very foundation of modern science fiction criticism. Brewer died in 1945 after suffering a series of tragedies, including the accidental death of his son, divorce, and a nervous breakdown. But his work lives on and most definitely holds up to rereading. You can find the novel that he co-wrote with Jack Williamson, *The Birth of a New Republic*, in. 
the 1999 collection, The Metal Man and Others: The Collected Stories of Jack Williamson, Volume One, published by Hafner Press. All of the other works that I have mentioned, including his essay on the future of scientific fiction, can be found in the 2008 volume. The Man with the Strange Head and Other Early Science Fiction Stories by Miles J. Brewer, which is ably edited and introduced by Michael R. Page, and part of the Bison Frontiers of Imagination imprint with the University of Nebraska Press. I'd like to end with a few lines from Miles Brewer's "The Future of Scientific Fiction." Scientific fiction of today is not yet perfect. And those of us who write it recognize that fact better than anyone else. When we attempt to wed two such dissimilar personalities as science and literary art, it is but natural that there should be a period of adjustment before conjugal life is perfect. But the point I make is that progress is being made right now. Amazing Stories is a pioneer. Our magazine is ineradicably down in history as the leader with the far-flung vision. A hundred or a thousand years in the future, men will point back to it as the originator of a new type of literary art. In the meanwhile, the art is spreading. Scientific fiction is gradually creeping into general literature. Old writers are turning attention to it. New writers are developing. Above all, public interest is increasing. There is a great fallow development going on at the present moment. Some day the public will wake up to an intense, conscious interest in scientific fiction, just as in the past in the realms of war, exploration, or mystery. So it will be in science. Man will use fiction to express his pride in the deeds he has done, and his dreams of the things he wants to do and has not yet accomplished. And with that, I say thank you, and I look forward to seeing you next time for another look back into genre history. There you go, and I've got some links off Amy, so I will put them on as well if you want to go and check out what Amy's been talking about. Amy, thank you so much. So the main fiction day is John Scalzi and After the Coup, which is, in my eyes, a cracking short story. It came from our good friends over at Tor. dot com. Go over to their site; it's amazing. You know, I mean, there's so many treats over there. And I emailed Tor. dot com, and I just said, you know, is there a chance that we can kind of get these stories out so the listeners of Starship Sova can have a, you know, have a listen? And like I say, I'm so glad they said yes. So do pop over there and show your appreciation to Tor. dot com. They have got some amazing stories. You know, we've got a Charlie Stross one coming up soon as well. You know what I mean, Charlie Stross? But this John Scalzi one, and pop over to his whatever blog. It's just like every day there's something over there that's happening. So please. And John, thank you so much for allowing Starship Sova to play this story. It is, in my eyes, fantastic. It's what science fiction is. Do you know what I mean? It's what what it brought me to the kind of the genre. You know, it's this kind of writing, this exciting, funny. It's just everything rolled into one. There's a little introduction by Mr. Scalzi as well. So there you go. So I'll hand you straight over to John Scalzi. Hello, everybody. I'm John Scalzi, and today I'm going to do a reading of my story after the coup. This is the first time that I've actually done one of these audio bookish sort of things, so uh, I hope you'll be patient while I try to get it right. In any event, here we go. It's after the coup, and it's by me, John Scalzi. 
How well can you take a punch? asked Deputy Ambassador Schmidt. Lieutenant Harry Wilson blinked and sat down his drink. You know, there are a number of places a conversation can go after a question like that, he said. None of them end well. I don't mean it like that, Schmidt said. He drummed the glass of his own drink with his fingers. Harry noted the drumming, which was a favorite nervous tell of Hart Schmidt's. It made poker games with him fun. I have a very specific reason to ask you, he said. I would hope so, Harry said, because as conversational icebreakers go, it's not in the top ten. Schmidt looked around the Clark's officer lounge. Maybe this isn't the best place to talk about it, he said. Harry glanced around the lounge. It was singularly unappealing. A bunch of magnetized folding chairs and equally magnetized card tables and a single porthole from which the yellowish-green limb of Korbaati was glowing dully. The drinks they were having came from the rack of vending machines built into the wall. The only other person in the lounge was Lieutenant Grant, the Clark's quartermaster. She was looking at her PDA and wearing headphones. It's fine, Hart, Harry said. Enough with the melodrama. Spit it out already. Fine, Schmidt said, and then drummed on his drink some more. Harry waited. Look, this mission isn't going well, he finally said. Really, Harry said dryly. What's that supposed to mean, Schmidt said. Don't get defensive, Hart, Harry said. I'm not blaming you. I just want to know how you came to that conclusion, Schmidt said. You mean, how did I come to the conclusion despite the fact I'm this mission's mushroom, Harry said. Schmidt frowned. I don't know what that means, he said. It means you keep me in the dark and feed me shit, Harry said. Ah, Schmidt said. Sorry. It's fine, Harry said. This is a Colonial Union diplomatic mission, and I'm Colonial Defense Forces, and you don't want me to be seen by the Corba because we don't want my presence to be interpreted as a provocation. So while the rest of you head down to the planet and get to breathe real air and see actual sunlight, I stay up here in this latrine of a spaceship training your technicians to use the field generator and catching up on my reading. Which is going well, incidentally. I just finished Anna Karenina. How was it, Schmidt said. Not bad, Harry said. The moral is to stay away from trains. But the point is, I know why I am kept in the dark. Fine. Fair enough. But I'm not stupid, Hart. Even if none of you tell me anything about this mission, I can tell it's not going well. All you deputies and assistants come back to the Clark looking like you've had the crap beat out of you all day long. It's a subtle hint. Harry picked up his drink and slugged some back. Hmm. Anyway, yes, Schmidt said. The mission isn't going well. The Corba haven't been nearly as receptive to our negotiations as we thought they might be. We want to try something new. A new direction. A new diplomatic tack. A new tack that is somehow focused on me getting punched, Harry said, setting his drink back down. Maybe, Schmidt said. Once or repeatedly, Harry asked. Well, I think that would depend on your definition, Schmidt said. Of once, Harry asked. Of punched, actually, Schmidt said. I already have very deep reservations about this plan, Harry said. Well, let me give you some context, Schmidt said. 
Please do, Harry said. Schmidt produced his PDA and began to slide it over to Harry, then stopped midway through the motion. You know that everything I'm about to tell you is classified, he said. Good Lord, Hart, Harry said. I'm the only person on the Clark who doesn't know what's going on. Harry reached over and took the PDA. On its screen was the image of a battle cruiser of some sort floating near a skyscraper. Or, more accurately, what was left of a skyscraper? It had been substantially destroyed, likely by the battle cruiser. In the foreground of the picture, small, vaguely humanoid blotches seemed to be running from the ruined skyscraper. Nice picture, Harry said. What do you think you're seeing there? Schmidt said. A strong case for not letting trainees drive a battle cruiser? Harry asked. It's an image taken during the recent Corbin coup, Schmidt said. There was a disagreement between the head of the military and the Corbin civilian leadership. That skyscraper is, well, was, the Corbin administrative headquarters. So the civilians lost that particular argument, Harry said. Pretty much, Schmidt said. Where do we come in, Harry asked, handing back the PDA. Are we trying to restore the civilian government? Because, to be honest about it, that doesn't really sound like something the CU would care about. We don't, Schmidt said, taking back the PDA. Before the coup, the Corbin were barely on our radar at all. They had a non-expansionist policy. They had their few worlds, and they stood pat on them for centuries. We had no conflict with them, so we didn't care about them. After the coup, the Korba are very interested in expanding again. This worries us, Harry said. Not if we can point them toward expanding in the direction of some of our enemies, Schmidt said. There are some races in this area who are pushing in on us. If they had to worry about someone else, they'd have fewer resources to hit us with. See, that's the colonial union I know, Harry said. Always happy to stick a knife in someone's face. But none of this has anything to do with me getting punched. Actually, it does, Schmidt said. We made a tactical error. This mission is a diplomatic one, but the new leaders of the Korba are military. They're curious about our military, and they're especially curious about our CDF soldiers, whom they've never encountered because our races have never fought. We're civilians. We don't have any of our military on hand and very little in terms of military capability to show them. We brought them that field generator you've been training our technicians on, but, but that's defensive technology. They're much more interested in our offensive capabilities, and they're especially interested in seeing our soldiers in action. Negotiations up to this point have been going poorly because we're not equipped to give them what they want, but then we let it slip that we have a CDF soldier on the Clark. We let it slip, Harry said. Well, I let it slip, actually, Schmidt said. Come on, Harry, don't look at me like that. This mission is failing. Some of us need this mission to succeed. My career is not exactly on fire, you know. If this mission goes into the crapper, I'm going to get reassigned to an archive basement. I would be more sympathetic if saving your career didn't require blunt force trauma for me, Harry said. Schmidt nodded and then ducked his head a little, which Harry took as something akin to an apology. When we told them about you, they got very excited, and we were asked by Corbin's new leader, a direct request from the head of state, Harry, if we would be willing to pit you against one of their soldiers in a contest of skills. 
It was very strongly implied it would make a real difference in the tenor of the negotiations. So, of course, you said yes, Harry said. Let me remind you of the part where I said the mission was going into the crapper, Schmidt said. There's a small flaw in this plan, Harry said. Besides the part where I get the crap kicked out of me, I mean. Hart, I'm CDF, but I'm not a soldier. I'm a technician. I've spent the last several years working in the military science division of the forces. That's why I'm here, for God's sake. I'm training your people to use technology we developed. I'm not training them to fight. I'm training them to twirl knobs. You've still got CDF genetic engineering, Schmidt said, and pointed to Harry's sitting form. Your body is still in top physical shape, whether you use it or not. Your reflexes are still as fast as ever. You're still as strong as ever. Look at you, Harry. There's nothing flabby or squishy about you. You're in as good a shape as any soldier on the line. Well, that doesn't mean anything, Harry said. Doesn't it? Schmidt said. Tell me, Harry. Everyone else on this mission is an unmodified human. Is there any one of us that you couldn't take in hand-to-hand combat? Well, no, Harry said. But you're all soft. Thanks for that, Schmidt said. He took a sip of his drink. My point is whether or not I'm engineered for combat, I haven't been a soldier for a very long time, Harry said. Fighting isn't like riding a bicycle, Hart. You can't just pick it up without practice. If these guys are so hot to see the CDF in action, send a skip drum back to Phoenix and request a squad. They could be here in a couple of days if you made it a priority request. There's no time, Harry, Schmidt said. The Corbel want a combat exhibition tonight. Actually, Schmidt checked the chronometer on his PDA, in about four and a half hours. Oh, come on, Harry said. They made the request this morning, Harry, Schmidt said. It's not like I've been keeping it from you. We told them about you. They made the request, and ten minutes later I was being hustled off to the shuttle back to the Clark to tell you. And here we are. What's this skill contest they want me to have, Harry asked. It's a ritualized combat thing, Schmidt said. It's it's physical combat, but it's done as a sport, like karate or fencing or, or wrestling. There are three rounds. You get scored on points. They're judges. From what I understand, it's mostly harmless. You're not going to be in any real danger. Except for being punched, Harry said. You'll heal, Schmidt said. And anyway, you can punch back. I don't suppose I can pass, Harry said. Sure, you can pass, Schmidt said. And then, when the mission fails and everyone on the mission is demoted into shit jobs and the Korba ally themselves with our enemies and start looking at human colonies they can pick off, you can bask in the knowledge that at least you came out of this all unbruised. Harry sighed and drained his drink. You owe me, Hart, he said. Not the Colonial Union. You. I can live with that, Schmidt said. Fine, Harry said. So the plan is to go down there, fight with one of their guys, get beat up a little, and then everyone walks away happy. Mostly, Schmidt said. Mostly? Harry asked. I have two requests for you from Ambassador Abumwe, Schmidt said. 
And she said for me to say that by request, she means that if you don't do them both, she will find a way to make the rest of your natural existence one of unceasing woe and misery. Really, Harry said. She was very precise about her word use, Schmidt said. Lovely, Harry said. What are the requests? The first is that you keep the contest close, Schmidt said. We need to show the Corba from the start that the reputation of the CDF is not undeserved. Well, not knowing what the rules of the contest are, how it's played, or whether I'm even physically capable of keeping up with it, sure, why not? I'll keep it close, Harry said. What's the other request? That you lose, Schmidt said. The rules are simple, Schmidt said, translating for the Corbin who stood in front of them. Normally, Harry would use his brain pal, the computer in his head, to do a translation, but he didn't have access to the Clark's network to access the language. There are three rounds, Hart said. One round with a banca, those are like quarterstaffs, Harry. One round of hand-to-hand combat and one round of water combat. There are no set times for any round. They continue until all three judges have selected a victor or until one of the combatants is knocked unconscious. The chief judge here wants to make sure you understand this. I understand, said Harry, staring at the Corbin, who came up roughly to his waist. The Corba were squat, bilaterally symmetrical, apparently muscular, and covered with what appeared to be an infinite amount of overlapping plates and scales. What little information Harry could uncover about the Corbin physiology suggested that they were some sort of amphibious stock and that they lived some of their lives in water. This would at least explain the water combat round. The gathering hall they were in held no obvious water sources, however. Harry wondered if something might not have been lost in the translation. The Corbin began speaking again, and as he spoke and breathed, the plates around his neck and chest moved in a motion that was indefinably strange and unsettling. It was almost like they didn't quite go back into the same place they started off. Harry found them unintentionally hypnotic. Harry, Schmidt said. Yes, Harry said. You're all right with the nudity, Schmidt asked. Yes, Harry said. Wait, what? Schmidt sighed. Pay attention, Harry, he said. The contest is performed in the nude so that it is purely a test of skill. There are no tricks. You're okay with that. Harry glanced around the gymnasium-like room they were in, filling up with Corbin spectators, human diplomats, and Clark crew members on shore leave. In the crowd of humans, he located Ambassador Ambumwe, who gave him a look that reinforced her earlier threat of unending misery. So, everyone gets to see my bits, Harry said. Afraid so, Schmidt said. All right, then. Do I have a choice, Harry asked. Not really, Schmidt said. Then I guess I'm all right with it, Harry said. See if you can get them to crank up the thermostat. I'll look into it, Schmidt said, and then spoke something to the Corbin, who replied at length. Harry doubted they were actually speaking about the thermostat. The Corbin turned and uttered a surprisingly loud blast, his neck and chest plates spiking out as he did so. Harry was suddenly reminded of a horny toad back on Earth. 
From across the room, another Corbin approached, holding a staff just under two meters in length, with the ends coated in what appeared to be red paint. The Corbin presented it to Harry, who took it. Thanks, he said. The Corbin ran off. The judge started speaking. He says that they apologize that they are unable to give you a more attractive banca, Schmidt translated, but that your height meant they had to craft one for you specially, and they did not have time to hand it over to an artisan. He wants you to know, however, that it is fully functional and you should not be at any disadvantage. He says you may strike your opponent at will with a banca on any part of the body, but only with the tips. Using the unmarked part of the banca to strike your opponent will result in lost points. You can block with the unmarked part, however. Got it, Harry said. I can hit anywhere? They aren't worried about someone losing an eye? Schmidt asked. He says that if you manage to take an eye, then it counts. Every hit or attack with a tip is fair. Schmidt was quiet for a moment as the judge spoke at length. Apparently, the corba can regenerate lost limbs in some organs, eventually, so they don't see losing one as a huge problem. I thought you said there were rules, Hart, Harry said. My mistake, Schmidt said. You and I are going to have a talk after all this is done, Harry said. Schmidt didn't answer because the judge had started speaking again. The judge wants to know if you have a second if you don't have one, he will be happy to provide you one. Do I have a second? Harry said. I didn't know you needed one, Schmidt said. Hart, please make an effort to be useful to me, Harry asked. Well, I'm translating, Schmidt said. I only have your word for that, Harry said. Tell the judge that you're my second. What? Harry, I can't, Schmidt said. I'm supposed to be sitting with the ambassador. And I'm supposed to be on a bunk in the Clark reading the first part of the Brothers Karamazov, Harry said. Clearly, this is a disappointing day for both of us. Suck it up, Hart. Tell him. Schmidt told him, and the judge started speaking at length to Schmidt, chest and neck plates shifting as he did so. Harry glanced back over to the seating area provided the Colonial Union diplomats and Clark crew, who shifted in their rows. The stands were half-sized for humans. They sat with their knees bunched into their chests like parents at a preschool open house. They didn't look in the least bit comfortable. Good, thought Harry. The judge stopped speaking, turned toward Harry, and did something with his scales that caused a wave-like ripple to go around his head. Harry shuddered involuntarily. The judge seemed to take that as a response, and he left. We're going to start in just a minute, Schmidt said. Now might be a good time for you to strip. Harry set down his banca and took off his jacket. I don't suppose you're going to strip, he said, being my second and all. The judge didn't say anything about it in the job description, Schmidt said. He took the jacket from Harry. What is your job description, Harry asked. I'm supposed to research your opponent and give you tips on how to beat him, Schmidt said. So what do you know about my opponent, Harry asked. He was out of his shirt and was slipping off his trousers. My guess is that he will be short, Schmidt said. 
How do I beat him, Harry said. He slipped off his shoes and let his toes test the spongy flooring. You're not supposed to beat him, Schmidt said. You're supposed to tie and then take a fall. Harry grunted and handed Schmidt his shoes and socks. Am I correct in assuming there are several species of legume that would do a better job being my second than you are, Hart? I'm sorry, Harry, Schmidt said. I'm flying by the seat of my pants here. And by my pants, Harry said, handing his over. I guess that's true, Schmidt said. He looked at the nude Harry and counted the number of apparel he was holding. Where's your underwear? he asked. Today was laundry day, Harry said. You went commando to a diplomatic function? Schmidt asked. The horror in his voice was unmistakable. Yes, Hart, I went commando to a diplomatic function, Harry said, and then motioned to his body. And now, as you can see, I'm going Spartan so a midget can whack me with a stick. He bent and picked up his bunka. Honestly, Hart, help me out here. Focus a little. All right, Hart said, and glanced at the pile of clothes he was holding. Let me just put these somewhere. He started off toward the human seating area. As Hart did this, three Corba approached Harry. One was the judge from earlier. Another Corbin was carrying his own bunka, proportional to his own height. This was Harry's opponent. The third was a step behind Harry's opponent. Harry guessed it was the other second. The three Corba stopped directly in front of Harry. The one holding the bunka handed it to his second, looked up at Harry, and then thrust out his hands, palms forward, making a grunting noise as he did so. Harry hadn't the slightest idea what to do with this. So he handed his bonka to Schmidt, who had just come running up, thrust his own hands forward, and returned the motion. Jazz hands, Harry said. The Corbin seemed satisfied, took back his bonka, and headed toward the other side of the gym. The judge spoke and held something in his hand. He says they're ready to begin, Schmidt said. He will signal the start of the round with his horn and will use it again at the end of the round. When the round ends, there will be a few minutes while they set up for the next round. You can use that time to rest and confer with your second. Do you understand? Yes, fine, Harry said. Let's get to it already. Schmidt responded. The judge walked off. Harry began working with the banka, testing its balance and warp. It felt like it was made of a hard wood of some sort. He wondered if it would splinter or break. Harry, Schmidt said, and pointed to where the judge stood, horn raised high. Looks like we're starting. Harry held his banka in both hands, chest high, horizontal to the ground. Any last pieces of advice, he asked. Aim low, Schmidt said, and backed off the floor. Great, Harry said. The judge blasted his horn and moved to the side of the gym. Harry stepped forward with his banka, keeping his eye on his opponent. His opponent raised his banka, expanded his chest and neck by an alarming amount, emitted a deafening noise somewhere between a belch and a roar, and launched himself at Harry as fast as his little feet could carry him. The corba in the stands, ringing the gym save for the small section for the humans, cheered mightily in a similar chest-inflating, burping fashion. Three seconds later, 
Harry was confronted by the fact that he had absolutely no clue what he was doing. The Corbin had set on him with a slashing, dizzying array of bunker maneuvers. Harry blocked about a third of them and avoided the rest by stumbling backwards as the Corbin pressed his advantage. The Corbin was whirling his bunker like a rotor blade. Harry realized that having the longer bunker was not an advantage here. It took longer to swing, block, and attack. The little Corbin had the upper hand, as it were. The Corbin lunged at Harry and appeared to overextend. Harry swung his bunker overhead to try to tap him on the backside. As he did, the Corbin twisted inside the arc of Harry's attack. Harry realized he'd been played just as the Corbin viciously whacked both of his ankles. Harry went down. The Corbin jumped on his back just far enough to begin enthusiastically tenderizing Harry's midsection as he fell. Harry rolled and blindly thrusted Bonka out at the Corbin, somewhat improbably it connected, poking the Corbin in its snout. The poke phased the Corbin into stopping its attack and taking a step back. Harry poked it back a couple more steps and then stood up, testing his ankles. They complained but held. Keep poking him, Schmidt yelled. Harry glanced over to snap something back, giving the Corbin an opening. He took it, whacked Harry hard upside the head, then reapplied himself to Harry's ankles. Harry stumbled but kept upright, wheeling in a drunken fashion toward the center of the gym. The Corbin followed, swinging merrily at Harry's already bruised ankle bones. Harry got the distinct feeling he was being toyed with. Screw this, Harry thought, and stopped, planted his banca firmly into the gym mat, and hurled himself up the staff. A second later, he was doing a handstand at the top of it, balanced by dint of his finely calibrated, if disused, motor control, courtesy of the Colonial Defense Force's genetic engineering. The Corbin, clearly not expecting this tactic, stopped and openly gawked. That's right, Harry said. Come whack on my ankle now, you little prick. Harry continued to feel smug about his plan right until the moment the Corbin crouched and launched himself into the air with a powerful push of its powerful legs. The Corbin didn't make it as high as Harry's ankles. He did, however, get right on level with Harry's face. Oh, crap, Harry thought, before a blinding crack of a bonka smashed across the bridge of his nose and robbed him of any further capacity for reaction, commentary, or thought. All those things came back to him with blinding pain as Harry's spinal column compressed into the gym mat as he fell. After that, there were a few moments of curiously distant sensation as the Corbin's banka dug into various parts of his body, followed by an even more distant blast of a horn. The first round was over. The Corba strutted off to the sound of belching applause, Harry propped himself up on his banka and staggered over to Schmidt, who had found him a water bottle. "'Are you okay?' Schmidt asked. "'Are you dumb?' Harry said. He took the water bottle and squirted some of the water on his face. "'I'm kind of wondering what the thinking was on that handstand,' Schmidt said. "'The thinking was that if I didn't do something, my ankle bones would be a fine powder,' Harry said. "'Well, what were you going to do then?' Schmidt asked." I don't know, Harry said. I was in a rush, Hart. I was making it up as I went along. 
I don't think it worked the way you wanted it to, Schmidt said. Well, maybe if I had a second who told me these little bastards could high jump two meters straight up from a squat, I would have tried something else, Harry said. It's a fair point, Schmidt said. Anyway, you want me to lose, remember? Harry said. Yeah, but we want you to lose by just a little, Schmidt said. You need to keep it closer than this. Ambassador Bumway is glaring a hole through the back of your head right now. No, don't look. Hart, if I could have made it any closer, I would have, Harry said. He drank some water and then stretched, trying to find a place on his body that didn't hurt. His left instep seemed the most likely candidate. Harry glanced down and was glad the Corbin had not seemed aware that human testicles were especially painful when struck. His had managed to escape injury. Looks like they're ready for the second round, Schmidt said, and pointed at the judge, who was standing with his horn. On the other end of the gym, the Corbin was hopping from foot to foot, loosening himself up for the hand-to-hand combat. Swell, Harry said, and handed the water battle back to Schmidt. Words of wisdom for this round? Mind your ankles, Schmidt said. You're a big help, Harry said. The horn blew, and he stepped back into the gym floor. The Corbin wasted no time fronting an offensive, charging Harry almost as soon as he was on the floor. A few meters out, the Corbin kicked and launched himself into the air, claws out. He was aiming for Harry's head. Not this time, you son of a bitch, Harry thought, and pushed himself back and toward the gym floor. The Corbin slid just over Harry's head, slashing as he did so. Harry responded by bringing up a leg and delivering to the Corbin's posterior a truly excellent bicycle kick. The Corbin suddenly accelerated headfirst into the stands, colliding violently into several other Corba, whose refreshments went flying. Harry arched his head from lying position to see the carnage, then glanced over to Schmidt, who gave him an enthusiastic thumbs up. Harry grinned and picked himself off the floor. The Corbin burst out of the stands, enraged and refreshment-coated, and launched himself once more and incautiously at Harry. Being suddenly and humiliatingly launched into the stands had apparently simplified the Corbin's attack strategy down to tear the human a new one. Harry didn't mind. The Corbin approached and wheeled back to deliver a mighty blow either to Harry's midsection or genital region, whichever was closer. Harry responded by holding steady until the last second and then shot out his arm. The Corbin's forward motion was smacked to a standstill as Harry's left palm met the little alien's forehead. It was like stopping a particularly aggressive eight-year-old. Harry smirked. The Corbin was not amused at what it registered as a condescending defense maneuver on Harry's part. It burp-snarled its rage and prepared to shred Harry's forearm. Harry reared back his right arm as if to slug the Corbin, distracting it, and then quickly retracted his left palm, made a loose fist, and popped the Corbin in the face. The Corbin snorted in alarm. Harry took that moment to bring back his right hook square into the Corbin's snout. The scales and plates of the Corbin's face puffed out as if the alien's head was a flower traumatized into blossom. They settled back as the Corbin collapsed onto the ground. Harry kept him on the ground by kicking him viciously every time he so much as puffed a plate. 
Eventually, the judges got bored with this and blew their horn. Harry walked off the floor, but Corbin second came and dragged him off. I think you might have overdone the kicking, Schmidt said, handing Harry his refilled water bottle. You're not the one whose kidneys were mashed into pate in the first round, Harry said. I was just giving him what he gave me. He was still breathing at the end of the round. He's fine. And now the contest is closer, which is what you wanted. Harry drank. A door opened on the side of the gymnasium, and a forklift-like contraption drove in, carrying what appeared to be a large kiddie pool full of water. The pool was sat down near Harry. The forklift then retreated to reappear a minute later with another pool, which was sat down near Harry's Corbin competitor. Harry looked over at Schmidt, who shrugged. For the water combat round, he ventured. What are we going to do, splash each other? Harry asked. Look, Schmidt said, and pointed. The Corbin competitor, now somewhat recovered, had stepped into his pool. The judge, standing again in the middle of the gym, motioned Harry to step into his pool. Harry looked at Schmidt, who shrugged again. Don't ask me, he said. Harry sighed and stepped into his own pool. The water, very warm, came up to his mid-thigh. Harry fought back the temptation to sit down in it and have a nice soak. He looked over again at Schmidt. Now what do I do? he asked. Schmidt didn't respond. Harry waved his hand in front of Schmidt. Hart. Hello, he said. Schmidt looked over to Harry. You're gonna want to turn around, Harry, he said. Harry turned around and looked at his Corbin competitor, who was suddenly about a foot taller than he had been and growing. What the hell? Harry thought. And then he saw it. The level of the water in the Corbin's pool was almost slowly falling. As it did, the scales and plates on the Corbin were shifting, sliding against each other, and separating out. Harry watched as the scales on the Corbin's midsection appeared to stretch apart and then join, as the plates that used to be underneath locked into place with the plates that used to be above, expanded by the water flooding into the Corbin's body from the pool. Harry's eyes shifted from the Corbin's midsection to its hands, where its digits were expanding by rotating the overlapping scales, locking them together into a previously unknown dance of Fibonacci sequences. Harry's mind thought of several things at once. First, he marveled at the absolutely stunning physiology of the Corbins on display here. The scales and plates covering their bodies were not simply integumiary, but had structural qualities as well, holding the shape of the Corbin body in both states. Harry doubted there was an internal skeleton, at least as it was understood in a human body, and the earlier puffing and expanding suggested that the Corbin's structural system used both air and water to do certain and specific things. The species was clearly the atomical find of the decade. Second, he shuddered at the thought of whatever evolutionary pressure had caused the Corbin or its distant amphibioid ancestors to develop such a dramatic defense mechanism. Whatever was out there in the early seas of this planet, it had to have been pretty damn terrifying. Third, as the Corbin forced water into its body, 
growing to a size now, a square of a size and some terrifying cube of the mass of Harry's own dimensions, he realized he was about to get his ass well and truly kicked. Harry wheeled on Schmidt. You can't tell me you didn't know this, he said. I swear to you, Harry, Schmidt said, this is new to me. How can you miss something like this, Harry said. What the hell do you people do all day? We're diplomats, Harry, not xenobiologists, Schmidt said. Don't you think I would have told you? The judge's horn sounded. The towering Corbin stepped out of his pool with a hammering thud. Oh, shit, Harry said. He splashed as he tried to get out of his own pool. I have no advice for you, Schmidt said. No kidding, Harry said. Oh, God, here he comes, Schmidt said, and then stumbled off the floor. Harry looked up just in time to see an immense fist of flesh, water, and fluid dynamics pummel his midsection and send him flying across the room. Some part of Harry's brain remarked on the mass and acceleration required to lift him like that, even as another part of Harry's brain remarked that at least a couple of ribs had just gone with that punch. The crowd roared its approval. Harry groggily took stock of his surroundings, just as the Corbin stomped up, lifted up its immense foot, and brought it down square on Harry's chest, giving them the sensation of involuntary defibrillation. Harry watched as the foot lifted up again and noted two large hexagonal depressions in them. The part of his brain that had earlier marveled at the physiology of the Corba recognized these as the places where the body would take in water. They would have to be at least at that large to grow the body as quickly as it did. The rest of Harry's brain told that part to shut the hell up and move because that foot was coming down again. Harry groaned and rolled and bounced a little as the impact of the foot on the floor where Harry had just been caused everything to vibrate. Harry crawled away and then scrambled to his feet, narrowly missing a kick that would have sent him into a wall. The Corbin lumbered after Harry, swinging at him as the crowd cheered. The alien was quick because its size allowed it to cover distance quickly. But as it swung at Harry, he realized its attacks were slower than they were before. There was too much inertia going on here for the Corbin to turn on a dime or make quick strikes. Harry suspected that when two Corba fought in this round, they basically stood in the middle of the gym and beat the hell out of each other until one of them collapsed. That strategy wouldn't work here. Harry thought back on the first round, where the smaller Corba's size was an advantage, size and the fact it knew its way around a banca. Now the situations were reversed. Harry's smaller size could work to his advantage, and the Corbin, in this size, wouldn't know how to fight something smaller. Let's test that, Harry thought, and suddenly ran at the Corba. The Corba took a mighty swing at Harry. Harry ducked it, got in close, and jammed an elbow into the Corbin's midsection, whereupon he discovered to his dismay that, thanks to their engorgement, hitting the Corbin's plates was just like punching concrete. Oops, Harry thought, and then screamed as the Corbin grabbed him by his hair and lifted him. Harry caught hold of the arm, lifting him so his scalp wouldn't tear off. The Corbin commenced punching him in the ribs, cracking a few more. Through the pain, Harry levered himself on the Corbin's arm and kicked upward, jamming his big toe into the Corbin's snout. 
Clearly, it was the one body part of the Corbins that Harry was having luck with today. The Corbin howled and dropped Harry. He flopped down and thudded to the floor on his back. Before he could roll away, the Corbin stamped on his chest like a piston once, twice, three times. Harry felt a sickening stab. He was reasonably sure he had punctured a lung. The Corbin stamped again, forcing fluid out of Harry's mouth. Definitely a punctured lung, he thought. The Corbin raised his foot again, and this time aimed for Harry's head, taking a moment to perfect its aim. Harry reached up and grabbed the toes of the Corbin's foot with his left hand. With his right, he formed his fingers into a point and jammed them into one of the hexagonal depressions as hard as he could. As he did, Harry could feel something tear, the fleshy valve that it closed to keep the water inside the Corbin. It tore, and a spray of warm water pushed out of the Corbin's foot and splashed over Harry. The Corbin offered an unspeakably horrible scream as the unexpected pain obliterated any other focus and tried to shake Harry off. Harry hung on, jammed his fingers further into the valve, and wrapped his left arm around the Corbin's lower leg and squeezed, juicing the Corbin. Water sprayed on the floor. The Corbin hopped, frantically attempting to dislodge Harry, and slipped on the disgorged liquid. It fell backwards, causing the entire floor to quake. Harry switched positions and now started pushing on the leg from the bottom, forcing even more water out of it. He could actually see the leg deflating. The Corbin howled and writhed. He clearly wasn't going anywhere. Harry figured that if the judges had any brains at all, they would have to call the round any second now. Harry looked over at Schmidt. Schmidt looked at him with something akin to raw terror on his face. It took Harry a minute to figure out why. Oh, right, Harry thought to himself. I'm supposed to lose. Harry sighed and stopped juicing the Corbin, letting the leg go. The Corbin, still in pain, eventually sat up and looked at Harry, with a look that Harry could only imagine was complete confusion. Harry walked over and knelt down into the Corbin's face. You have no idea how much it kills me to do this, Harry said, reached out to the Corbin's face and made a grabbing motion. Then he stuck his thumb out from between his index and middle fingers and showed it to the Corbin. The Corbin stared at him, non-comprehending. Look, Harry said, I got your nose. The Corbin swung a haymaker straight into Harry's temple, and the lights went out. That's not really the way we expected you to do that, Schmidt said. From his bunk, Harry tried very hard not to grimace. Facial expressions hurt. You asked me to keep it close, and you asked me to lose, he said, moving his jaw as little as humanly possible. Yes, Schmidt said, but we didn't think you would make it so obvious. Surprise! Harry said. The good news is, it actually worked for us, Schmidt said. The Corbin leader, 
who, incidentally, you caused to get drenched in fruit juice when you kicked your competitor into the stands, wanted to know why you let your competition win. We had to admit we told you to lose. He was delighted to hear it. He had money on the other guy, Harry said. No, Schmidt said. Well, probably, but that's not the point. The point was, he said, your willingness to follow orders even when winning was in your grasp showed that you could make short-term sacrifices for long-term goals. He saw you almost winning as making a point about CDF strength and then losing as making a point about the value of discipline. And since he seemed quite impressed with both, we said those were indeed exactly the points we had wanted to make. So you have brains after all, Harry said. We rolled with the changes, Schmidt said. And it looks like we'll come out of this with an agreement after all. You saved the negotiations, Harry. Thank you. You're welcome, Harry said. And I'll bill you. I have a message for you from Ambassador Umbumwe, Schmidt said. I can't wait, Harry said. She thanks you for your service and wants you to know she's recommended you for a commendation. She also says she never wants to see you again. Your stunt worked this time, but it could have just as easily backfired. All things considered, you're not worth the trouble. She's welcome, Harry said. It's nothing personal, Schmidt said. Of course not, Harry said. But I like the idea that I had choreographed having the crap kicked out of me down to that level of detail. Makes me feel like a genius, it does. How do you feel, Schmidt said. Are, are you okay? You keep asking that very same dumb question, Harry said. Please stop asking it. Sorry, Schmidt said. He turned to go and then stopped. It does occur to me that we know the answer to another question, though. What's that, Harry said. How well you can take a punch, Schmidt said. Harry smiled and then grimaced. God, Hart, don't make me smile, he said. Sorry, Schmidt said again. How well do you take a punch, Hart? Harry asked. Well, if this is what it takes to find out, Harry, Schmidt said, I don't want to know. See, Harry said, I told you you were soft. Schmidt grinned and left. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Mr. Scalzi's. There will be links over at the front of Starships over to pop over to whatever. Just type in whatever. You will go to John Scalzi's blog. The thing is massive. And was I right about it being a great story? You know what I mean? This is what made me fall in love with science fiction. Just the sheer escapism, the sheer enjoyment of listening to a story as good as that gets no better. Well, that is Starship Sova show number 63. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Do think about dropping a donation over at the front of the website. I mean, keep this bird going high, going strong. We certainly appreciate it. Do think about a monthly donation. £2.50 a month. A pint of real ale. Gets you the sanatorium private show as well of my good self. If you want to learn up about all them classic writers, pop over to the shop. The whole 85, 86 shows, I think there is, 9.99, or you can buy one for 99 pence. You will get to hear Mr. Kieran O'Carroll, 
My God, yes, the founder member of Starship Sofa. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.